All right, folks, welcome to the Land Podcast. This is Jake Hofer, and this is the very first true episode of the Land Podcast. We have an episode right before this that goes into great depth of what this podcast is going to be all about and everything else. But in case you don't catch that, I'm just going to give you a real quick synopsis. Basically, this podcast is all about the land buying process and everything else that has to do with acquiring land. I feel that it is an area that is often overlooked, and I think that this will be a great resource for anyone looking to either buy their first piece of ground or continue their knowledge in this subject matter. So the big goal of this podcast is to help 100 people buy their first piece of ground, and we have a resource sign up in the description of this episode and you just go there you type in your email and your name and your phone number and we're going to be able to send you some exclusive land buying resources that are going to help you out in this process help you get more knowledge and we're going to be acquiring basically a knowledge database with some of the sharpest people that we can find now as a quick disclaimer some of these first episodes will have already been aired on the other podcast trocam radio but I promise we're going to be bringing you some exclusive, never heard before content. But we want to get this project up and going. And we're going to be releasing episodes every single Monday at 5 a.m. Central Standard Time until we get some more data and decide if we need to change the date or change the upload frequency. But that is what we're going with. Next week's episode is going to be a inaugural episode of the First Time Land Buyers series. And we talk with Dan and Stacy Bayes all about how they acquired their first piece of ground, what they learned, what would they do different, what would they do the same, and if it's been a good decision for them up to this point. So that is a series that I'm extremely excited about, and you get to hear from first-time land buyers that are everyday folks that have regular jobs, regular commitments, just like any one of us. So anyways, this episode is with Jeff Sturgis. He breaks down his checklist of what to consider when you are looking at a piece of ground and it's just packed full of information and covers a wide spectrum of thoughts. And what I find most interesting is his thought on income when it comes to finding a parcel for deer hunting. I think it might surprise you. So let's go ahead and get right into this. We hope you guys enjoy it. Super excited to bring you guys this project. Let's go. All right, Jeff, thanks for hopping on a call here. I know you are headed to Michigan and what's going on in Michigan there. I didn't to, uh, uh, watch my son Sam play some basketball. So he's playing tonight, uh, Tuesday night, and then Thursday night he's going to play his last game. And we'll uh, come back on Friday and get to spend some time with Diane's family. Uh, Diane's in the trunk here. She'll probably keep kind of quiet. <laughs> okay. But uh, she is sitting here. So if you can maybe think to put her on the spot with a question. No, then. no. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I, I need to start jotting yeah. down some questions no. then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Gotcha. Well, thanks for uh, hopping on. Yeah. Here. I, I know it's a busy time sure. of year for you. Um, I know this is a, a, a lot of client uh, things going on this time, but it's always good to hop on a call when you have a little bit of road time. So I appreciate you making time for us. Yeah, I think that's the last time we did a podcast. It was um, when we were on the road. So yeah, you always a good time. The, the yeah. uh, public land challenge out there in Pennsylvania. I think. It yes. Was. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. Well, so this, um, so we're starting kind of a fun little project here. Uh, at Exodus, and uh, this is going to be one of the inaugural pieces of content. But we want to talk all about a deer parcel buying guide. And I think a lot of people have the land bug right now. Um, maybe their last season didn't go as well, and uh, as those spring projects are arising, there a lot of people are probably looking for a, pl- a place to scoop up 
whether it's a lease or uh, putting their dollars together to, to buy something. And right. you've, you've gone through and you've done some videos on this and you kind of have a, a checklist of what's good, what's bad, and what can you change and what, what you, can you not change. So I right. guess if you're ready, we can dive right into it. Sure. That sounds really good. Okay. So one question um, that I think a lot of people probably wonder is, do you think it is good to have a water source on a parcel or no water at all? Yeah, and that's that's a good question because a lot of people will look at it. They'll even say when they're describing their land that uh, when we're going to go visit with them and they're breaking down the land, what it looks like, a lot of them will say it has a great water source. And, you know, then it's a pond, it's a fishing pond, it's a river. It's uh, a lot of times when there's current water on a parcel, it's not located in the right spot because what I find is that uh, water doesn't necessarily attract more deer to your parcel unless you're in a very arid region. You know, maybe that would be the case in Texas or something or somewhere else, um, maybe somewhere in the southwest. But water doesn't attract more deer to your land. It just defines movement. So if water is located in the wrong place on your land as it relates to tree stands and their overall movement pattern of movement that you're trying to create, then it could actually pull deer away from your stands and so I always encourage if you do have a water hole on your land or if you have water, it should always be, it's almost like a sin in my book if it's not by a, uh, by a bow stand because it really defines movement. And if you have it away from that bow stand, then it's actually literally could be pulling deer away from you and in the wrong direction. Yeah, I, I think that makes complete sense. And I think traditional thinking would say, well, I need to have a creek or I need to have a pond, um, you know, for those deer to drink. And I... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but deer can actually go multiple days, if not weeks, without even drinking water, and they're getting their moisture right. from content of leaves and everything, forage. Yes. Yeah, and that's why we find they drink more during the rut, a buckwood, than during the summertime, because even though it's hot during the summer, they have all that green vegetation that supplies their moisture requirements. And and I always look at, too, if it's, you know, just even as far as placement, if you have deer that are bedded dry all day eating acorns, hardwood regeneration, briar, shrub tips back in their bedding area, then they'll hit water regularly on the way to their afternoon food store source, even if water's in the opposite direction. So you could actually have deer bedding on a ridge and water's behind that ridge, but because food is on the opposite side, they'll travel to that, that food source and hit that water on the way, even though they could have gone out of the way a hundred yards, they're just not going to do that. They're very efficient creatures. So, um, even even if you have water, it's not necessarily a bad thing. And I'd finish too, one, what water does indicate is uh, change in habitat. So if you have water, typically you have swamp or lowland and where you have that transition for hardwoods to lowland, that could be a good thing because it speaks to the diversity of a parcel. But again, going back to, uh, you really wanna make sure that you use water to define movement. So, um, sometimes you have that where you can find it, you can find that diversity, find it's in the perfect spot. Um, but often if it's a dry parcel, those water holes are so, so powerful for attracting deer movement or legal. Yeah, I think that's, that's good advice. So rolling into something else. So I think, uh, a lot of people, I mean, buying land is, is a very, it's a, it's a big, uh, financial overcoming. I mean, it takes, it takes some serious cash to usually acquire a piece. Um, and so timber value is something that people probably look at as a way to either recoup some money or some sort of income. 
what's your what's your thoughts on timber value when you are solely buying a piece for whitetail whitetail hunting? One one of the things, uh, so you know, we were able to buy our acreage in Minnesota last June, and one thing I was so excited about on the property is that it has overall pretty poor timber value, and what I mean by that is that um, hard cherry, hard maple, even oak, uh, beech, if your woods is entirely made out of hickory, um, if it's entirely made out of those hardwoods, um, a lot of those are very poor deer habitat trees. You know, everyone loves oaks uh, for acorn production, but that's about it. Um, your it's most large acorn producing areas are, uh, there's not much understory, so you're lacking cover. So I really like uh, property that has upland cover, that has early successional growth, that has old growth that you can blow your scent into and access to on tree stands. And what you'll find is the more diversity you have and the lower the quality of timber overall, the higher wildlife value, including whitetail value, because you can uh, say, for example, box elder, ash, uh, soft maple, uh, conifer, those are all great habitat, uh, aspen, poplar, uh, great regeneration value, great cover, great browse, and then if you have conifer in there, um, even uh, trees like red cedar can be very valuable as it relates to the overall value of your bedding cover. So um, what I see and where I see the best whitetail properties around the country are those that generally have the lowest timber value. Interesting. So what if, what if someone found a parcel that was for sale in a really good deer neighborhood? Um, it currently was kind of open hardwoods. Um, I mean, what's your, what's your thought process on, on logging and trying to log it specifically for whitetails as well, in addition to the income? Yeah, so, I, so I'll give you an example. I had a client, uh, they had 400 acres, brothers up in the northwest portion of lower Michigan, uh, 400 acres of hardwoods. They, they put in about 30 acres of food plots, um, three or four miles of trails throughout the property and they logged the hardwood that was on there. They got about 160,000 in timber off. Half of that they would have given to the landowner at $80,000. And for that dirt work they completed, the landowner would have had to give back the 80,000 plus 50. So it would have cost the landowner $130,000, including the timber harvest that was in there, um, that they would have paid them. But so out of pocket, he would have had 50,000 uh, to complete that dirt work. And that's the problem I see with a lot of open hardwood parcels that might have good timber value, the diversity is not there. The diversity is still decades away, even if you plant and try to change it to more of an upland, uh, early successional growth, high quality wildlife parcel. Um, you're a huge amount of dirt work expense for creating the amount of food plot space and bedding areas and diversity that you want, and you're decades away from that being a, a good parcel, where if you take, say, open ag land, in two years, you could have that be an incredibly powerful attraction to uh, deer habitat. So when you combine, you know, say a hardwood piece with open ag land or open pasture land, early successional upland growth, then you can have the best of all worlds, um, including maybe some timber value on it. But, um, but really, there's a lot of work to, that needs to be considered in years and years to come. If uh, the higher the timber value, the more open the hardwoods, the longer you're going to have to wait to have a good whitetail parcel, and you might never have a good whitetail parcel compared to something else that offers more diversity to begin with. Interesting. So 
that kind of leads into the next thing that you you kind of preach is edge and the importance of diversity. When you say edge, can you dive into that more? I mean, is that just exterior edge with your neighbor? Is that interior edge? What does that look like? Yeah. So I look like to look at a ratio, and an edge is any type of change in habitat where, say, you have a clear cut that means old cuttings, that means um, moderately aged cuttings, middle-aged cuttings, and then you have habitat change, whether it's uh, from a lowland to an upland setting to a hardwood setting, uh, food plot edge, ag edge, old pasture edge, um, creek system, pond, swamp, whatever it might be, all those create edges. And when you look at the exterior edge of a 40-acre parcel, that's 440 yards by 440 yards, you know, all the way around square, 1320, 1320, all the way around. I look at it that if you add up your edge on the inside of the parcel, and that is several times higher than the exterior edge um, in terms of linear edge of change, then you found a, a more valuable wildlife parcel. For example, uh, 40 acres of all hardwoods is a very poor ratio because there's no edge on the inside. You have the outside edge and that's it. So when you have all those changes taking place within that 40 acres, then that can be, that's a great sign that whitetails are creatures of edge, uh, wildlife are creatures of edge, most uh, rabbits, pheasants, grouse, um, they, they don't do well in a monoculture. And another way to look at this is if you look at it from the air, that um, there's a huge difference in canopy, meaning switchgrass is seven feet high, conifers might be 20 or 30, Upland brush might be seven feet high, uh, mature hardwoods 90 feet high, clear-cut hardwoods and regeneration could be 20 feet high. So if you look at all those changes in canopy, that's also a great indication that uh, not only do you have edge, but you have a high-quality wildlife and whitetail parcel. Got it. So would you? So basically, if there's a 40 that's a straight hardwood, in your opinion, is that something you just want to avoid? in terms of just because it might take so long to actually end up building that into a diverse habitat or is that something that you wouldn't be scared to take a you know to tackle for me personally um i expect results within a year two years so i don't want to make changes the the one i don't want to wait for those changes i don't want to make them because you don't have to there's other parcels you can buy out there mm -hmm. but if the 40 or 20 acre parcel especially a 10 or 20 that's located in just a phenomenal deer area where the property just represents a pass-through between incredible uh, deer parcels. That's something I might take on uh, just for the fact that I could step in and just hunt what's going on with the neighbors, say, along a river bottom. Um, but then I'm looking at I'd rather have a 10-acre pass-through parcel than a 40 because you're, you're basically just looking for deer to go through that parcel. I don't want to wait decades for the improvements to take place. And I'm taking advantage of what's going on around that parcel than actually on the parcel. So in that case, I'd certainly rather own 10 acres on a, a river bottomland area and dedicate that money that I was going to spend on the other 30 acres and buy another piece somewhere else. So I could get in tap into two different buck herds. Mm, interesting. Got it. I think that's a good way to illustrate that because oftentimes those hardwood pieces when you're walking them, man, they're always gorgeous, especially if you're walking it that third week October when leaves are pretty. Um, oh, yeah. It's just almost Pretty. against human nature, like on what you instinctually want to do. Yes, yeah. It's like you want to rip it apart, leave some edge on the ex, And that's what happens. You leave uh, mature timber on the outside. You have an overall wildlife timber stand improvement. 
and then you have clear-cut pockets where you want it, where you want to connect bedding areas, travel corridors, and movement, where you want to cut more, and then you want to add conifer to a diversity. So it's just, um, for me personally, with how busy I'm, I am in my life, uh, I, I wouldn't want to buy a parcel like that just because I don't, I expect results faster, and, uh, and there's frankly just better parcels out there. Um, then, then it, unless it's that really, you know, typical, incredible pass-through between well-known big buck areas. Sure. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I think that helps with understanding the importance of diversity in general and having edge and trying to stay away from a square foot 40 of just hardwoods. But what about open right. food sources? So kind of the opposite of an open hardwood. How about a open field? So I love open fields. I think that, um, like, if I was looking at 50 acres, I'd want, you know, 15 or 20 to be open. Um, we we purchased 178 acres with our home last year, and I would I would estimate that roughly 30 acres is open, uh, 25 acres right around there, and that was a pretty good ratio because there was a lot we could do with that. In fact, we'll add another acre of food plot this year, so we'll be up to about 12 and a half acres of food. I'll have about eight acres of switchgrass. And I think we'll have several acres of pollinator blend too, and uh, and we'll still have a little bit to work with, a little bit of edge, and and that's why I can, you know, instantly on that property last year we could put uh, 11 and a half acres of food plots in, uh, three acres of switchgrass, and we could start making a difference right away. And so I always like that percentage of ag land, open land, because as you're complementing other cover along with it, you know, it's it's kind of like if you have an eight acre parcel surrounded by some ag. Um, you can turn that 80 acres of cover into 20 acres pretty quick with some switchgrass and diversity pockets and food plots. And now you can have an instant great parcel that's several times larger than the woods would indicate. And so that, that field edge, and I always encourage people too, you know, ag land is incredible when it's on someone else's property. Mm-hmm. But on your property for a whitetail parcel, it's the lowest form of habitat that you can have. CRP that falls down here in the winter would be the next level. And then the, the ultimate level with open ag land is to convert it to uh, typically switchgrass in the north half of the country so it stays up all winter. And then diversity pockets and various habitat plantings so that um, you can actually have a parcel that uh, holds and attracts deer immediately. And switchgrass in year two is should be in that seven to eight feet range. So it doesn't take a lot of browse within the switchgrass uh, pockets, strips, whatever it might be, to supply enough browse uh, for the daylight hours uh, to complement the cover of the switch. So, I always love those open parcels, and um, and I encourage people to buy land that they don't have to rent out the ag land mm-hmm. um, to pay the bills. You, they're better off having a smaller initial investment into a, a parcel that they can actually control and use the entire amount towards uh, whitetails and wildlife. Interesting. So. A lot of these people that you work with in the past, what's the what's the typical kind of time time period that they hold on to it? Do they get do these people get bored if they're buying a, a twenty or thirty and they make those changes? From what you've seen, like just uh, the behavior of those folks, or is it something that they they build up and they don't want to let go? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I see that um, it seems like if I'm going out there and they're making improvements and they're investing into that process, then it sure seems like they hold them a lot longer than the average person would. Um, I see a lot of people that are ready to sell their land, and it's because they've had diminishing returns. 
and there's there's a pattern I see on about 95% of landowners where they stick so much money and effort into habitat improvement. The more that that habitat improvement is invested into, um, without uh, taking into consider consideration how the land is hunted and creating those habitat improvements that actually make it a better land to hunt, then the worse off someone's going to be five years down the road. And so I I get into a lot of clients about that time where they're just beating their head against a wall. They've made improvements for 10 years, five years, and they they were better off before they made the improvements because now they've attracted every deer in the neighborhood only to spook them off. Mm. So um, I see that once, they, once people make improvements the right way, connecting habitat improvements so they're not spooking deer, then what I find is that they end up holding those properties and I firmly believe that even people that are hiring me and paying my daily fee to come out, that um, it's crazy that the potential that I see on their land is typically much, much higher than what they would ever imagine could be. Because I've seen parcels that do it right. If they're not doing it right, they have no idea how much land they're better, how much better their land can be. Mm-hmm. So if just to put it in, in number values, let's say you walk on a farm that's a, a four, the way it sits right now. Obviously, there's a lot of factors, but like on average, a plan that you put together, like if if a farm hunts a four out of ten, is that something in two or three years it could hunt like an eight out of ten for the neighborhood and for the area, or is it like a six out of ten? How much improvement, I guess, do some of those folks see from making these kind of most strategic of, changes? Most of the time, they can get to a 7 or 8 out of 10 within a year, within that first hunting season. Wow. Because people hire me to work on their habitat when really what they need work on is how they hunt the land. And if they've never had consistent success shooting mature bucks on their own, you know, not going to guides, doing it on public, private land, then they're going to have a hard time putting a habitat plan together in their lifetime that would complement um, how it actually should be hunted. And so if they don't, if they're not used to shooting four, five, six-year-old bucks, then they're not going to make habitat improvements that will allow them to do so, uh, typically, unless they spend many, many years to do so. And that's where people get frustrated. And so what's interesting, what I see is I've had a lot of clients that have purchased additional properties within five to 10 miles from their current base property because I always look at it like, you know, you could have 40, 60 acres and tap into all the mature bucks in the area within a mile. And whereas if you, um, if you own like we do, we have 180 acres, well, you know, that's our home site, so it's a little bit different, but we would have been better off if we owned 340s in the area. Mm-hmm. And now we can hunt different, uh, different buck herds. And, um, and I think when you do that, you might trade off one parcel doing it for a year or two you'll have those base parcels that you really enjoy and keep for many years, probably longer than average. Interesting. Okay. So I think that's helpful. What is, what is usually the lowest bucket on those farms that you're walking that folks are, are frustrated is in terms of how are they hunting the wrong? Are they accessing the wrong? Did they not have screens or do they don't have the diversity that they need? What are, what are some of the, the biggest goof ups that you see? I'd say that, see the number one, and it has to do with access too, but um, over hunting, and pressuring uh, food plots. Mm-hmm. So you see on the outdoor channel that it's cool to put a redneck right in the middle of a food plot and you're going to shoot a 190-inch buck because the Drury Brothers did it in Iowa or Kansas or Missouri, wherever they're hunting. Um, but those are the fantasy of the United States. And if you get to the high number of states where the, you know, the bulk of the hunting population is in New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, 
Wisconsin, Minnesota, then it gets to a point where um, you just, there's too much hunting pressure and food plots have the biggest risk and reward, meaning that a food plot, if it's a high quality one, you can attract deer from a couple miles away. But that also means that you can educate deer within a couple miles too. All the deer in the neighborhood know that you're hunting on that plot and it, it quickly becomes a nocturnal property. And I've seen, um, and there's many times over that uh, a client will, you know, we started food plots five years ago and it's been worse every, we put all this money into lime and fertilizer clearing and we're worse off now than where we were. And part of that too is where they locate food plots. If you locate food plots typically in the center of a small parcel, then you're going to fragment your potential area that a mature buck can even better or focus on your land during the daylight hours. Interesting. So on speaking in general, uh, so food, general strokes. Yeah. So go ahead. <laughs> yeah. I would say food mismanagement, food uh-huh. overhunting, food plot location, but a lot of it just because that's the strongest attraction. Um, that's where you make people make the most mistakes. Interesting. Okay. So I guess in terms of that same kind of idea of access, what, you know, depending on what the predominant wind is in the area, what is some of the best forms of access that you can look for as you're as you're shopping for a farm so if you can locate um, food appropriately off to the typically off to one side especially on a smaller parcel meaning anywhere from five ten acres up to 500 acres um, if you can lo- locate food away from the core area of your property and bring deer from that core area to that food food source every day now what's really nice about that is when you access in the morning, you access on the opposite side of where the food's at, that gets you into defined morning stands. Whereas if you have the food located away from those areas, now you have defined evening stands. So now you actually have an assemblage of stands. I always say that it's not a great parcel unless you have half of your stands are highly defined morning stands or at least you know 30, 40%. And then the rest of them are evening stands, and it could flip either way. But you know, around 50-50, um, when you have that defined food source, that allows you to layer does and fawns close to that food, and then bucks uh, deeper into the parcel. And so, on a 40-acre parcel, for example, I'd look at food on one or two sides, uh, maybe a couple complementary hunting plots, and uh, and then a large portion of that property um, into cover, and that allows you to access more definitively you know the deer are here and so I'd rather see someone um, you know you can take a chance in the morning hours and if you happen to blow out a deer in its bedding area if you're maintaining the integrity to the food plot um, then that's almost more important than bumping a random buck out of his buck bed way back into the cover because if the food is solid and the bulk of the deer herd is still hitting that food on a daily basis about an hour before light every day or dark then um then that's going to not only protect those bedding areas, those deer will come back into those bedding areas, but it'll give you a very defined stand access for where you hunt in the morning, where you hunt in the evening. Not even thinking wind or anything like that. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So what about road access? How, how important is that? You know, you see a lot of lanes or a lot of parcels draw it up where they have like a solo lane to get into a farm. And then you have some that are adjacent right on, you know, multiple forms of hard, hard pavement roads. Yeah, I, some rules of thumb there. Yeah, it'd be interesting to get your feedback on on that with what you're seeing with people looking for land. But um, I like, I really, really like uh, road access because you can make bedding area improvements 30 yards off the road. You can 
um, high tree stands that are very close to the road and therefore you're maximizing your space. Kind of the opposite is a 40 acre parcel surrounded by woods and cover and other properties. Well, let's say it's back a half mile. Well, now you're walking through woods and cover to get back to that 40 or ride driving. Um, and so you're making noise to even get to your 40 and then that's not typical. And then on top of that, you still have to create a certain amount of space to allow you to move around the property without potentially spooking deer. So that 40 acre parcel surrounded by cover gets pretty darn small when you have to make an access trail all the way around it. And, uh, and so when you have roads on two sides, then you can just pop in. You're not devoting too much cover to access and deer get used to that road noise. So it creates a pretty effective access for you to get in and out when there's roads. Yeah, that I would agree with that. So let's ask, let's ask or let's dive into um, neighbors. I think that's always a hot button topic or issue sometimes, depending on who is your neighbor. What what are the words of wisdom for neighbors for you? You know, what's interesting in a lot of this. So to me, you know, like the hunting industry is full of myths and uh, misinformation. Sometimes it's just kind of passed down from person to person. And I think, with the QDM movement going back to the late 90s and early 2000s, it was kind of like I even saw people that, you know, my neighbor shot this small buck and, you know, it's just ruining the land. Well, I look at it like I look at it completely different, um, you know, coming from someone that I just look at, you know, I get paid to be right. I get paid to make good decisions and make good observations for people. And so it's a little bit different because I come at it from no background, just other than learning from experience with clients. But what I find is that um, sometimes those brown it's down neighbors aren't that bad of neighbors to have because if you have older bucks running around, they usually just shoot small bucks and don't burn their tags on those older bucks. Plus, over a 10-year period, they might shoot 10% of the mature bucks in the area, but they're getting a very, very low percentage because of the way they hunt. Those neighbors are easy to deal with. Um, some of the neighbors that that are harder to deal with, or let's say those neighbors that are putting out tons of food plots. They're increasing the number of deer in the area, but because they overhunt those food plots, which most people do, it's creating a nocturnal parcel. That's not a bad neighbor either, because then you could have that parcel where they're hitting near the daylight. It's almost like a bad neighbor and they're not bad people. It's that, let's say you have a uh, neighbor that has 40 acres. You're doing tons of habitat work. You're improving the area. Maybe someone else does too. And these neighbors are just smart hunters off to the side. Well, they go into their property and consistently shoot mature bucks because they know how to hunt, but they're not actually building or contributing to the habitat and the, their overall health of the herd or anything like that. They're just shooting the big bucks that everyone else is, you know, growing and raising and holding in the area and setting standards for. So you could, you know, you could really make a, a case for neighbors that brown it's down. You'd almost rather be next to or at least have one of those kind of neighbors by you. And then I, I actually like public land too. So when you when you have public land um, that's blocked off by your private land, most of the time I see public land expanding someone's effective amount of acreage that they're actually managing and hunting. Plus you can use the public land to access your own land too, or no one else can. So um, there's a few few thoughts on neighbors, but um, in in those those fence sitting neighbors, sometimes the best way to combat fence sitting neighbors that have the their stands and blinds pointing into your own land is to just simply have an access trail that goes alongside your your property line which is smart anyways so nothing against them it's just if you're 
managing your property right, then you're going to find those fence-sitting neighbors aren't going to, going to want to sit on your fence line to watch you walk by to access your stands. Mm -hmm. So, okay, for instance, with a public land parcel, I think the first thing people think of is trespassers. Have you, have you right. seen or is there any is there any ways to help deter trespassers or I guess what are some tips on that that area of issue? The, what I find is that people that have trespass problems usually initially have problems and a lot of times they're giving someone access to go through their land and then that person takes advantage of them or they're not being strict enough when they do find and locate trespassers and prosecuting to the fullest extent of the law. And so what I do find is that typically trespassing concerns, it's very rare that they pop up over time and get worse. Usually if they're not there to begin with, uh, they, don't, uh, they don't begin. Typically people that are trespassing aren't looking to walk in a mile and get into a really good location right on someone's back door and accessing onto their land. They're, they're, they're typically working that hard getting into a remote public land area it's because they know how to hunt and they're taking advantage of improvements that private landowners are making but it's actually they're they're doing a good job just you know with what they have on public land to hunt and i find that typically they're not trespassing so um i've i had two trespassers in the up in michigan we were surrounded by public land federal land and commercial forestry mm -hmm. and both of them um i talked to one of them even then his family ended up buying buying the property when we left oh, another one i kept in uh his name was steve he was an accountant in escanaba another one and i kept in touch with him for years they were both trespassing in different ways had a chat with them and basically said you know if you're going to sit right on the line facing in and you shoot something on the property and you're you're not going to be allowed to get it but if you're back there a couple hundred yards on public land and they had literally tens of thousands of acres they could hunt um, I said, I'll, I'll come out and help you find your deer, help you track your deer. And, and I did that. And so um, ended up, you know, we keep in touch throughout the seasons. And so potential trespassing was actually, you know, I was pretty firm with it. But at the same time, also acknowledging that you shoot a deer and it goes on the land, just let me know. Um, if I'm around, I'll go out with you and, and look for it. But again, if you're sitting on the line and, and you know, you're just setting yourself up for a problem. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it seemed like, you know, we didn't, that was, we had that property for 14 years and those were the only two people that really pushed it. I could think of someone else, but I knew him and uh, caught him quickly. <laughs> so <laughs> that was, that was, he was just going for a joy ride, ripping up the, the trails and stuff on the side by side. But other than that, it's, um, and, and, you know, and we've had trespassers in Wisconsin over all the years. I think it's been, uh, can't, it's hard to believe it's, I think it's been 19 seasons now that I've hunted. Uh, two properties there mm -hmm. and uh and we've had just a handful of trespassers and only a couple maybe three deer in hind season in all those years and then we've had some for morels and uh shed hunters and i would say the morels and shed hunters we have more trespassers than actual hunters yeah i could i could attest to that and agree with that people seem to respect boundaries uh, a little bit less during shed season and mushroom season too so yeah, that, they do, that makes they sense. do don't they yeah they just it's, don't think it applies like to people, them well, people that would never, ever trespass for hunting. I mean, they would never, but, yeah, where'd you find those sheds again? You know, where'd oh, yeah. you pick those mushrooms? And you find that they were trespassing to pick mushrooms or sheds. And it's like, there's, it's much more common than people think during that time of the year. So, 
yeah, I, I usually keep my cameras out a little bit longer just for that reason itself to help keep people honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We have some, uh, we have our cell cams, our renders, uh, mm -hmm. that's, that's where they'll be active this year. I need to, Chad was asking me the other day what I needed for this season. And I, I think, uh, some, some, uh, just a handful of renders would be nice. I, I love that for keeping tabs on, on people just as much as here. Yeah, and if you do have a trespass, you're able to act quickly and swiftly, however that, you know, whatever that means to you, um, especially right. if you live close, you can go talk to them yourself or you have the proof instantaneous. Yeah, we could have, we could have a nice uh, friendly chat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Things or something are, like that. Yeah, yeah, times are changing, yeah. So it's uh, it's getting harder to be a trespasser, which is good. Um, yes, it is. Yes, and that's why, again, I think that, Unless you have problems initially, they're typically you're not going to have going to have to worry about trespassing. It doesn't matter if you're, um, you know, you're next to private land or public land. Awesome. I think that's good. So, okay, so we've talked about the neighbors here. Now, speaking of income, and I'd love your thoughts on this CRP contract. So, a lot of people are still trying to, you know, get some sort of income to take down those payments. But in your opinion, if I'm correct, not a big fan of those programs. Uh, no, not at all. And, and I'll be honest too, um, I haven't really seen any good pheasant programs either because the way that they're all planted, it's such a combination of, of cover and forbs and forages, depending on what program you get into. There's in most areas, and I'm saying, like say, draw a line from Iowa through central Illinois, central Indiana, Ohio, over into Pennsylvania to New York and north over into uh, uh, Minnesota, even southeast Minnesota is uh, northern Iowa. And most of that cover is laying down completely during the wintertime, so it supports no sustainable population of uh, pheasants, rabbits, um, let alone deer. So you're really throwing away potential. Uh, you know, I've seen it where someone has 80 acres and they have 30 acres of CRP, well, that's, they might as well just not have any cover there. Sometimes it offers a little bit of border cover for neighbors, keeping them off. You know, a lot of times CRP is better than ag, but then at the same time, you're, you're handicapping your potential wildlife for many years to come. So again, it goes back to, I'd rather see someone maintaining as actual whitetail habitat, uh, reclaim it, or uh, put heavy switchgrass in so it actually holds up all, all winter long, um, allow for early successional growth, uh, woody shrubs, trees, briars, and even all that can be mowed if it has to, to maintain it as an ag field for like 30 years from now that you could actually use. It's not like you have to plant thousands of trees. So I look at it, um, CRP is, as a whole, um, if you like wildlife, it is more anti-wildlife than it actually sounds. Um, very, so I've had lots of clients that have pulled their land out of CRP, paid back, back taxes, mm -hmm. uh, made sure it was pulled out before they even purchased it um, so that they can actually do something with the land that uh, actually promotes wildlife instead of discourages it. So that seems to be a pretty big theme in your buying guide of maybe buy less ground with no income you know, or expectation of income than buying something a little bit bigger with, with more income but less habitat. Is that right? Right. Yeah. You have uh, a lot less debt to service. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, you might buy this giant parcel because I'll go to clients and say, well, we have 700 acres, but they only have 200 acres of woods. And so really they have 200 acres and then some fields that they can convert 
So the rest is just ag land. We're, for example, our 178 acres is surrounded on three sides by ag. Mm. Well, we might as well say that we own 900 acres because, you know, the ag isn't contributing anything anyways. It doesn't matter if we own it or the neighbor. So I'd rather have a lower cost basis and we'd like to buy a 40 acre parcel or something small over in Wisconsin someday. Um, and, and so if we have that ag, if we have that big debt out there, um, then that prohibits us or keeps us from potentially buying something somewhere else and actually having more usable acres for hunting. That's interesting. I think once again, it's one of those things that people are trained to be looking for income and to kind of like, you can't have your cake and eat it too type deal, <laughs> but, but people want right. to try that anyways. Yeah. It's kind of buying like buying a big duplex cause you can get a good deal on it and you say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to rent out the other half and live in this half. Well, you quickly realize that you might not want neighbors right next to you and trying to manage renters and, um, yeah, it's similar, similar kind of thing. Um, I think it's better for people to buy something smaller, more compact, something they complete, completely control and manage and, uh, and maybe spend those dollars elsewhere, either to make that land better or to maybe even buy something else somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what but about change? So what about if they go to resell it? Do you suggest to ever like, just like any business, sometimes people try to make the books look a little bit better if they know an acquisition is coming along. Um, you know, if they know they're going to sell that farm, would you ever suggest or could you justify to try to put some income on the books? Um, so it has a, a wider range of potential buyers or, or do you don't think that's worth the, you know, it's not worth the effort on that? I don't, I don't think so. What I see is uh, I've had a lot of people that have, you know, shown their design and sold their parcel based on the fact that it's already a set up deer hunting parcel. Mm-hmm. So I, I look at it like um, trail cam photos, rubs, scrapes. I'm a huge fan of mock scrapes because if you show someone, a highlight reel of a bunch of mock scrapes of bucks coming and hitting those and there are multiple areas on the property, mm-hmm. multiple big bucks. You're getting a high percentage of pictures. I mean, if you're, if you have a, a good trail cam uh, program on your, on your land that I find that you're going to get pictures and videos of 95% of, of all bucks within a mile of your land throughout the course of the season. And so, boy, those are good selling points. And then of course, rub scrapes, um, a good assemblage of access and access to tree stands and uh, food plot locations. So to me, that finished parcel that's kind of like a turnkey property, it's the foundation of the house. It's making sure that you're not going through a a bedroom to get to the only bathroom in the house. The kitchen is next to the garage. The dining room is next to the kitchen, not between bedrooms. And it's, uh, you know, if it's laid out well and you have a history of big buck on it, then that's going to make a determination of um, selling it uh, faster than trying to show some income or something like that. That someone might look at as, well, we're just going to convert that anyways. Sure. No, that, that makes sense too. Yeah. I, I guess I, I didn't look at it that way. So that, that makes sense. Cause yeah, if you are able to actually sell a, a true, and here's the thing too, I think a lot of people are trying to sell turnkey deer farms or like mm-hmm. hunting parcels, but they're yes. not really, but they're not really turnkey. <laughs> like they still have their issues. Like no. some of the things you're, you're making mention of. So there's a, probably a difference no, between it, a true remodel oh, yeah. or a, you know, fixer upper thrown together. With so what I, yeah. What I see is like, uh, um, the typical ones that people might sell and list and work on there. It's almost like taking a house and let's just throw a random bar area here in the living room. Let's throw a random kitchen over here 
in a, in the other uh, family room on the other end of the house. Let's stick a bedroom in the kitchen. That's 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 typically what I see in remodels of deer properties where they're just throwing water holes where it's easy to put a water hole in. They're throwing food plots where it's easy to throw a food plot in. Uh, they might have some native grass plantings that are laying down all all winter anyways. They're not really serving any purpose, and uh, and then they have bad access in overall based on the fact that all of those improvements are located in spots that help the deer pattern hunters more than hunters pattern deer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, that's powerful. That's almost a whole other topic in itself on how to identify a fake turnkey property. <laughs> That'd be a fun topic. Yeah, I would say most of them. Yeah. <laughs> if, they're, if, they're, if they're saying it's turnkey, then, you know, it's, uh, it's probably not. Um, and, you, and you can notice some signs that, you know, uh, there should be connections between bedding areas. Any, any food plot or any bedding area that you can't get around the property without walking around and not smoking deer out of needs to be changed, altered. That goes for water holes, too. Um, so there's, you know, some signs you can look for something like that mm-hmm. it has to make sense you want it to flow with the land uh an improvement that doesn't flow with the rest of the land is no improvement at all i like that that makes sense so okay so we've talked about a lot of these different items here but what about the things that you can't build in terms of it's just the way of the land it's either topography or it's a natural deer pinch funnel how much power do you put in those as, as you're shopping you know as a buying guide um i love one of the things that is common in about 50% of all whitetail parcels is some type of topography or elevation change. And elevation change in topography helps narrow down where deer will travel, and it also helps narrow down where deer aren't going to travel. So I love hills, um, and when you have that change in diversity and habitat, then uh, it can really be a kind of a no-brainer when you add in potential food plot locations and things like that. So. To me, the more complex the parcel as far as elevation change, habitat change, open ground for current, for putting in food plots immediately um, is at a very high uh, value. Mm-hmm. And then how much more age structure do you typically see on some of these areas that have, you know, pretty strong topography changes for the area? Do you see a, a drastic, you know, plus, plus or minus an additional two-year average of, of bucks harvested or, or is it maybe not quite that drastic? What was, what was that question again, Jake? Yeah, so sure. for areas that have a lot of topography changes, um, for instance, like a bluff system along a major ris- yes. river, do you see yeah. that age class being much stronger than an area that is basically easier to hunt? Uh, yeah, definitely. I always look at it like um, compared to no hills at all, at least a 100-foot change in elevation or more, 80 feet, you know, 100, whatever. There's no set number, but um, could be 50 feet in lower Michigan. But you're, you're looking at that elevation change will typically, all things being equal, number of hunters, season dates. For example, Wisconsin and Michigan are very, very similar to season dates. In fact, I hunted Wisconsin on January 30th last year. Michigan, uh, Michigan had been closed for a month. Um, Wisconsin actually opens three weeks on average, two and a half to three weeks before Michigan. Um, yet... Wisconsin, similar number of hunters. Uh, you can shoot two bucks in Wisconsin, one with a bow, one with a gun. Um, similar season dates all around, a similar number of hunters, but Wisconsin leads the record books in Fulton Young and Boone and Crockett entries. And to me, it's the, that west half of Wisconsin, the southwest corner, 
even some of the northern portions where there's just a lot of hills. And if you look down the Mississippi River, um, going from Wisconsin, Minnesota, down to Illinois, Iowa, into Missouri, it's just incredible along that stretch how many bucks there truly are. You know, and you look at the record bucks in the best counties, they're all up and down that Mississippi, and it's all bluff country. So mm -hmm. overall, I look at it like it increases the age structure 0.5 to one year. Um, all things being equal, you know, who knows what that exact number is, um, but it's it's significant um, mm -hmm. as far as, and to me, it's easier to hunt. You can cheat the wind and elevation change. You can blow your scent over hollows in the morning. You can count on thermals. It makes it more complex, but um, it, it creates a lot more usable parcel and a potentially higher value parcel in the end, too. Interesting. Yeah. I think a lot of people probably shy away from them because they're thinking like, oh man, I got to walk up that giant hill in the morning. <laughs> you know oh, what I mean? <laughs> but it's that's where the deer are. That's where we could ask Diane about that. Uh, <laughs> she said, well, she enjoys, uh, she, she, uh, she's been a really hard hunter the last three years. And I think our Minnesota, our Wisconsin parcel is what some of the stands she would, she was hunting the last day of the season two years ago and she text me i was on the way to a client or was that morning or something it was i think january 31st and uh i think you told me it but it took 45 minutes for you to get up the hill and, and it was oh, yeah <laughs> and how much snow a lot it's probably seven eight inches of <laughs> snow thinking down yeah she was she was having a really hard time getting but she she probably went up that hill over the last three years i'm sure she's been up that hill a hundred times yeah times and uh, so to move to Minnesota and we have top, top access, even though we have a big steep draw, boy, that top access is nice. <laughs> we don't, like when you drive 45 minutes now to Wisconsin to hunt or 50 minutes, you're thinking about that half hour walk up. Every step you take, it's uphill. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but we have incredible hunting in those hills. So it's worth the climb. And that's why we do it. We wouldn't do it if we were going to the top and not having much hunting. Book. Yeah. So, and you, yeah, that that was the farm that we were at a couple years ago, like close to your Wisconsin yes, place. Yes, it was. Okay. Yep. All right. Yep, yeah, right there. That's a big hill for yeah. anyone listening. That's <laughs> not an exaggeration. Yeah, I did say that's uh, when I was recovering from COVID. The first time I walked up that hill, which was probably too soon. I shouldn't have been hunting then, but I was walking up in the morning and I I counted, but I took 18 breaks and they were up wow. to a couple minutes. So it took me well over a half hour extra to get to the stand. So I was pushing an hour five minutes, hour and 10 minutes to get into a stand and heaving along the way, you know, just out of breath so bad because of COVID. But, you know, I, I did it because it's consistent opportunities up in those high areas. So even if pushing myself almost to the point of death, I wasn't going to not <laughs> <Yeah>. on, <laughs> up, up that hill. Grit. <laughs> so. That's where grit is on the hills. <laughs> That's where, no, Jake, I think Diane might refer to it as stupidity. I think, but uh, yeah. stubbornness might be a good, better word. I don't know. But, we'll, uh, we'll say yeah, grit anyways. to make us feel good. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the run, you know, what are you supposed to do? Yeah, you got to make <laughs> so, it happen. <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. Well, I think that's, you know, I felt like we, we covered a lot of the important buying guide items. I mean, how often do you think it takes, like, how long does it take to find a good parcel for you? Like, if you were to go, if I were to drop you off in, I don't know, south central Iowa, and you could drive within an hour of your home, how long do you think it would take you to find the right parcel? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm looking at area more, and then I'm looking at if it has 
the access and the ingredients that I'm looking for and diversity and, and ease of putting food plots in, then um, the area becomes more important than the land itself because I look at it like um, if you can add food plots in and you can work on the habitat and you can manage your access, then you're going to get a chance at those mature bucks in the area what I found 70-80% of the time over 10 years. And so you're going to be able to shoot the majority of your target bucks if you do it right. And again, it's going to go back to um, the area and then hitting those ingredients of more poor habitat, uh, less hardwoods, open space for food plots, and then edge. If you put that together, um, then you're, you're a year away from, you know, we shot five nice bucks in Minnesota last year, including the number one target buck. Yep. And it was, you know, we, we literally bought that January 5th and we worked on areas where you could kill bucks uh, as far as access points, funnels, how that related to food, how the food related to our access, potential bedding that we're working on right now this winter. Um, but to me, boy, you could find a parcel pretty quick if you just look for some basic ingredients and you find the right area, and then it all boils down to who cares if it's a 40-acre parcel or 160. Mm -hmm. If it has the ingredients and it's in the right spot, I'd almost rather prefer to buy fewer acres and then buy another one down the road than buy one big chunk that I can have, you know, otherwise purchase three separate ones and get into three separate buckers. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think the, once again, human behavior, everyone wants to own the neighbors. The grass is always greener on the neighbors, but in that way you, you just want to have a big parcel. But yeah, I, mean, I think owning multiple parcels is going to give you more opportunities and uh, able to shift around that, your own hunting pressure as well, which I think is very important. I, from That's, yeah, how, I, that's how I try to do it with my private farms that I have permission on. Um, yeah, yeah. And we, you know, even our property in Minnesota, that was the third... You know, we kept looking online, but that was the third house. Was it the third day? Yep. Yeah. Uh, really considered. For those of you who don't know, Diane, my wife, she's sitting right next to me on the tra trip. So <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if you heard her snore the one time, but she's up now. So <laughs> That's why you had to ask a question and wake her up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Our conversation but, uh, was too boring. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No. But, yeah, we, we just looked at three, uh, we just looked at three uh, parcels and decided on the one, yeah, it met those ingredients. And yeah, there were things I would have rather had than, than not, um, but at the same time, it was in the right area. So mm -hmm. um, we're, we've been really happy with the purchase, and, and, you know, for a lot of reasons, but again, it boiled back down. We have that open cover, switchgrass area that we can plant, food plots, areas of poor habitat with good regeneration value for, uh, for daytime browsing cover. Um, so we had that layout that we could actually put the pieces together right away and enjoy it and kind of goes back to you're not completing 80 percent of the work for 20 percent of the potential you're completing 20 percent of the work for 80 percent of the potential and then you're just adding to it throughout the years after that mm -hmm. that's that's interesting because one of the main reasons i asked that too is because i think people sit back and they just think they're like oh they're just waiting for that deal they're waiting for this one perfect farm to come to market and i think that helps illustrate that it, maybe there's really not such a thing and you're better off to, to get something and, and start building something. And maybe uh, when that parcel becomes available, you'll still be able to, to scoop that one up too. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah. And I, I work with people. Yeah. We look for the right parcel for eight years. Mm -hmm. Well, to me, how many perfect parcels did they pass by because they were continually looking for the right one? Yeah. And that's, and, and so that, that had to have happened. I think a lot of times when people say that they might've been keeping their eye on prices or something. 
-hmm. but actively looking, if you're actively looking, you should be able to farm, buy a farm or find one uh, really quick. The problem is, I know out by us, you're probably seeing this, but uh, uh, Jet, Chad Garteski is from Wazerville by us. They're, he's a, they're the top realtor state agent for several counties on both sides of the Mississippi out there, Wisconsin, Minnesota, you know, in our location. Mm -hmm. He had a 42 or 43 acre parcel that he let me know about this year. They priced it at a few hundred dollars more an acre than last year. Um, I think the, they listed it on by Wednesday. They had four showings. They already had an offer. Uh, they first within the first week. And then even flipping over to a $1.5 million piece, it was over in Buffalo County. That sold less than a week with multiple offers to it at listing price. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you can find a good parcel, but boy, you better not drag your feet in today's market. Yeah, the good ones aren't lasting long. And I think in terms of if you're able to scoop something up, with interest rates being so low, you're able to buy more than what you could have even three or four years ago in terms of a monthly yes. payment. I mean, yes, that's a huge advantage. Yeah. Of, of If you do find something, you can buy a little bit more uh, as long as you're trying to get a fixed rate or you know however long that, that fixed arm part of the of the loan is. Right, right. And that's and then you can get into, you know, a lot of this we're talking about would apply to lease properties or even someone just getting permission to hunt if they're really mm -hmm. keeping their eyes open and looking for that right piece. Um, again, you know, I, I look at like, you know, going back to property constraints that um, if I couldn't put a food plot on a private parcel, then I'd rather just go hunt public land because on public land, you can identify afternoon food sources and clear cuts or an oak ridge, whatever it might be, greenbriar patch on the top of a, a knoll down in Ohio. Mm -hmm. But, um, you, so you could identify there's food here, bedding here, and go hunt those, um, that assemblage of stands and different access routes. Where on private land, if you don't have that food source and you can't control that after the new daily movement, then it's just all random. You can't build a herd. You can't, uh, if you can't build a herd, it's hard to hunt a quality herd. And uh, so, you know, again, kind of going back to the constraints, those food plots are so critical when looking for land. I, I literally would not hunt a private piece unless I could add food plots to it because they're that powerful wow. and I, I like hunting public land too so i'd rather just go out on public land yeah yeah use that use that resource that's available to everyone um yes yeah there's some great public land out there mm -hmm. well i think uh any any other parting words for this part of uh recording here today in terms of <laughs> we, have, we have another we have a part two coming but anything else that yeah. we may have missed on the on the buying guide i think there's a lot of good good things that we covered that maybe people knew, but they just needed an, an additional uh, voice to say like, oh, okay, I need to, I really need to not do this. Or I really need to do that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a, a major decision and, you know, going back to now you get into rocks and wetlands and water and ponds, things like that, where you can't plant, you can't manage your habitat, does all deer. But in general, the lower the value of timber, the higher the value of not only whitetails for whitetails, but uh, for wildlife too. And when you add in some open ground that you can add food plots and junk timber, you're typically going to be, you know, laying smack dab in the middle of great whitetail habitat. Yeah, that seems to be what it boils down to. So, really appreciate it. Um, hopefully, people will stick around for part two here uh, as we release that yeah. another day. So, all right, we'll be right back. That sounds good. Yeah, thanks, Jake.